Playback on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by Panadol. Panadol made in Ireland. Contains paracetamol. Always read the label. Good morning. On Thursday, the royal family in Britain released a statement about Queen Elizabeth II's failing health. Betty called Joe from Birmingham. And I was just looking at her on Tuesday with Liz Trust and I just thought, oh gosh, I don't think you got too long, Your Majesty. But that's, that's in the hands of the Lord. Yeah, but exactly. she, she God, will be missed, Joe. She's yeah. a wonderful, wonderful woman. Well, how important is she in the eyes of British people? Oh, she's very high, top of the top of the list, I would say, without a doubt, Joe. Okay, she so really has been a wonderful queen, you know. And uh, she's had a lot to put up with, like most of us do, with children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. So, the so, doc- the so, so doctor, I think what raised most people's concern this morning was doctors said they were concerned for her health. Then Prince William and Camilla arrived, and then um, Charles obviously arrived. Yeah, well, she's just, she is 96, Joe. She is fading away slowly, but surely the day has to come. I don't think she's that ill. Yeah, yeah I, hopefully. I think hopefully, she is hopefully. nearing her end. When that, that happens, that's in the lap of the Lord, isn't it? Yeah, but Britain will be in But she's some, a wonderful woman, morning. and she okay, will yeah. be sadly missed, and there'll be a lot of tears when she goes, I'm sure of that, Joe. Betty was taking the news a lot better than Louise. I'm I'm in bits. Like I'm I I'm really upset. Like I'm devastated. She's like my nan. She's been um, part. You know, she's been part of my life for the whole of my life. Like you know, so like who who is in your life like for the whole of your life? Like she's like your family. Yeah. Okay. Princess Anne now has arrived at Balmoral. Oh yeah, she's. Prince William and Andrew and Edward are travelling to Balmoral. Oh yeah, she's definitely. No, but the, but the BBC are also reporting that she's comfortable and resting. So let's not. But I tell you, but, but what? Well, why? Why Louise has she? You live in Dublin. Why is she such a big part in your your life? Because she's been in. Uh, she's the constant in your life. Like when everything else is fluid and moving, she's constant. Like she's always been there. Like I haven't known anybody else. So. Um, she she really is like you, you can't explain it unless you're English and brought up in, you know from a child with her as the yeah. queen. You, she is really like your nan. Noel Cunningham in Donegal, one of Ireland's most dedicated royal watchers, called to dismiss any idea that Prince Charles would be anything other than a hugely popular monarch. The transition will be remarkably calm because for a long time now the offices have almost merged. Uh, Prince Charles, again, whom I've met when he came to Donegal. Uh, Don't let anybody think for one moment that he's not popular. He is very popular. He's a very gentle, dignified man. Uh, Camilla, uh, who will be uh, the Queen Consort, hasn't put a foot wrong. And let's just leave other items where they belong in the past for now. Um, The... The royal transition and royal sort of uh, happenings such as this, when when a queen is of a particular age, every piece of the jigsaw is in place. Everything will kick in mm. immediately. If and when, and hopefully it's not imminent, when Her Majesty yeah, the Queen yeah, okay. passes. And I mean, what we have to remember is forever, <laughs> you know, Prince Charles, the poor man, you know, since he was a young lad, every time he travels, he travels 
with a complete suit of mourning in his luggage, you know. Well, does he? I didn't, know. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's how, that's how the system yeah. operates. And the palace is a very well-oiled machine. Mary waved a Union Jack in Cork for Elizabeth II and Wood for Charles III too, she said. Okay, I mean, and, and have you ever seen the Queen? I have. I saw her outside my dad's office when she came to Cork and I waved the Union Jack. I saw her at the same place as I saw President Kennedy when I was a child. Okay, and if, if Charles becomes king, mm. and he will come to Ireland, there's no doubt about that because mm. he's mm. been here nearly every year. I went so. to see him as well, but I, I only saw him. <laughs> would you go out and wave the Uni Jack for the king of for the I king would. of England? Ah, God, I would. Oh yes, absolutely. I I went. He was here maybe four years ago. They went into the English market. She was here a few months ago. He? He's, never out, he's never out of the English market. He's there every Friday morning. Well, him and, him and Packy O'Callaghan, yeah, getting a bit of fish and oh, some, down, yes, some yes. halloumi. His mother, he tells them his mother sent him in for the, a bit of salmon, I think. A bit of salmon, yeah. A okay, salmon. Mary. What we say about people while they're alive should be the real measure of what we think of them and not the tributes that we pay when they've died. And by that measure, Queen Elizabeth was held in the highest of respect and admiration by Liveline's audience. X Factor winner Mary Byrne sang for her and shook her hand. I'm not a royalist by no means and I know the history of our country but we have to stop living in the past and listen, the past is, is, is hurtful and it, it, it's there and we cannot get rid of it. But this lady really, like she has tried everything, I think she has tried everything to try and make, you know, relationships better with us. Mm. With, with and Ireland. what did she say and, to you, Mary, when mm, you met her? And... It was very funny because when she took me hand, we were told just to grip her hand, she grabs my hand okay. and she held it like, like, a, like an ordinary person that she is. And she may she, be a queen to them, but she's an ordinary person. Do you person. think she knew that you'd been such a sensation on... Oh, she said it to me. Oh, did she? What did she say? Yeah, she actually said, your life must have changed now. I'm so happy for you. And I said, "Ma'am, did you do you watch it?" She said, "No, I don't." She says, "But you know, the young the young boys may 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 tape it now and then. They like to look at all that type of stuff. Okay. I may get to see it every so often." That's what the woman said to me. Okay. I didn't look at her as as a political thing. I looked at it as as a historical moment of you know this woman trying to make a relations better with us. I I I, I agree. You know that we we've suffered. We have, but so has everybody else, and we can't keep mm. living in the past. And, and I'm sorry for anyone that does. I remember and everybody was dying to see this film because it was quite hard to see. In 1952, Beryl took her son to see a film of Elizabeth's coronation. I went to it. I brought my son. I don't know what age he was, but I can't remember that. But he, I thought it would be a good education for him, something to remember. And he fell asleep. Okay. <laughs> he didn't remember okay. anything. <laughs> now you said you, what did you say you, you envy her at 96 being so mobile can I ask you what age you are Beryl uh, 103 what uh, you know that 103 magnificent so you so you were seven April, yes. you're way ahead of her you were seven years of age when the Queen was born yeah okay and how are you doing I'm a bit creaky as Liveline ended on Thursday afternoon, Joe told us that the Queen was under medical supervision but in a comfortable condition. I'll tell you one thing that I didn't have on my bingo card for a Thursday afternoon was Joe Duffy sincerely proclaiming God save the Queen. Okay. Uh, God, God save the Queen, as people say. Lowell calling him Michael Hanron because she is well regarded here with all with all our history and our tempestuousness and the the invasion and the uh, colonisation by by the British. But anyway, and, and the, our predecessor, so to speak. But anyway, there's nothing but goodwill coming in here today. 
On a whim, I turned over to BBC Radio 4 shortly after six that evening. And it wasn't long before, as protocol dictates, they started broadcasting the senior service, Radio 4, on all their channels and across the globe on the world service. Presenters Michelle Hussain and Evan Davies were talking to Royal Correspondent Johnny Diamond when the news from Buckingham Palace came to them via a tweet. From RAF Northolt in an RAF plane. Johnny, thank you. We have just had news within the last few seconds from Buckingham Palace, announcing the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. She was 96 years old. This is... So far, the palace has not given any further details, but this is the news, that we've had news of enormous significance for the entire country uh, and indeed beyond our borders as well, that the Queen died peacefully at Balmoral this afternoon. I'll just read that statement. The royal family... um tweeted the statement just one minute ago. The Queen died peacefully at Balmoral this afternoon. The King and the Queen Consort will remain at Balmoral this evening and will return to London tomorrow. Did you hear that? I have to say the speed of that took my breath away. The Queen is dead, long live the King. You can't even say the word succession that quickly. And after so many years of saying Prince Charles, the words... King Charles were ones that Sarah McInerney clearly felt unfamiliar with as they came out of her mouth for the first time. Well, in the last couple of minutes, Buckingham Palace has released a statement from His Majesty the King at the time of the Queen's death. That is how the statement is titled. Uh, This is, of course, from the now King Charles. And the statement says, The death of my beloved mother, Her Majesty the Queen, is a moment of the greatest sadness for me and all members of my family. We mourn profoundly the passing of a cherished sovereign and a much-loved mother. I know her loss will be deeply felt throughout the country, the realms and the Commonwealth and by countless people around the world. He says, during this period of mourning and change, my family and I will be comforted and sustained by our knowledge of the respect and deep deep affection in which the Queen was so widely held, and that from King Charles this evening. There was something of a mesmeric quality to Drive Time's tribute programme. Be you royalist or nationalist, republican or monarchist, it had the odd quality of something that was expected, contained no real surprises, but yet was impossible to turn away from. This was embodied in her historic state visit to Ireland in May 2011. It remains a powerful expression of the long journey of reconciliation across these islands and will never be forgotten. Above all, the warm welcome she received throughout that week in Dublin, Kildare, Cashel and Cork demonstrated how she was touched by those she met, and the respect and admiration for her fortitude. Her passing brings to an end a reign of historic duration and public service for which Queen Elizabeth II was so widely admired and respected. Er Garev Anam Dilish. Bertie Ahern shared this memory from 1998 that underlined Micheál Martin's point about her contribution to the relations between Britain and Ireland. Well, I, I was lucky enough to uh, get the seat of honour beside her just after the Good Friday Agreement at Buckingham Palace. And, you know, we, we, we spent the, the entire lunch. and um, she, she did most of the talking, but, you know, as she did with everything, I think, in, in the Commonwealth, in, in her role as 
as, as the Queen of England. But it, she, she briefed herself well. She was enormously uh, up to what was going on. She wasn't just asking questions about things in, in a vacuum. She knew personalities. Uh, she knew political parties. Uh, she, she knew what some of the agenda items were. So the questioning was always fairly intense. Um, uh, so she was well on top of her brief. And to, 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 to command that comic for 70 years mm-hmm. and to, you know, to, to be able to, to do that. And I, I know from some of the places I've been involved in conflict resolution in Papua New Guinea where I spent the last good few years, like she, she, she has been hugely helpful to them in their conflicts. And I think in Northern Ireland, she always kept herself um, in, a, in a fairly neutral position. She was always trying to be helpful. Um, you know, she took a lot of risks. I mean, the meeting with Martin McGuinness, she, you know, that wasn't easy for her at the time, neither was it for Martin. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I, I, the, I, I think... The, I, the laying of Reese, uh, of the Reese birth of Hearn as well, um, in, 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 on her visit to Dublin. Her visit to Ireland in 2011, I, I'd like to ask you about that. Much has been said about her speech. She started her speech in Irish, Uchtaron agus Achorja. That got an awful lot of attention at the time, but the visit itself was extremely important, uh, was it not? It was hugely important, and she wanted to, for many, many decades, she wanted to come to the Republic of Ireland. Like she'd been in Northern Ireland umpteen times, she'd been all over the world umpteen times. Mm-hmm. But just interestingly, I, I said this before, Cormac, but when, when the programme for the visit was being worked out, now I was gone when the visit happened, but when the programme was being worked out, you know, it was going to Artists Nuter on. Uh, planting the tree um, and all those things were the, the normal course events but when it came to the Gardner Remembrance and would she go to Gardner Remembrance and um, uh, lay the wreath uh, within two days um, it came back from the palace that she was up for that there was no problem with it now other things delayed the visit for some years and uh, the PSNI and the legislation but she had no problem at all uh, within two days it came back and the message came back that she had a, personally um, had, had sanctioned that. Now, there were a few other things that she didn't want to do, but they, were, they, they, were, they weren't as important as Garden Remembrance. As Anglo-Irish relations have sunk so badly in recent times, the archive recording that Drive Time played from the Royal Visit in 2011 was a heady reminder of when things were better than at any point in the last 800 years and how impressed we all were with her. She began that speech by speaking in Irish. Prince Philip and I are delighted to be here and to experience at first hand Ireland's world-famous hospitality. Together, we have much to celebrate. The ties between our people, the shared values, and the economic, business, and cultural links that make us so much more than just neighbours, that make us firm friends and equal partners. Madam President, speaking here in Dublin Castle... It is impossible to ignore the weight of history, as it was yesterday when you and I laid wreaths at the Garden of Remembrance. 
Indeed, so much of this visit reminds us of the complexity of our history, its many layers and traditions, but also the importance of forbearance and conciliation, of being able to bow to the past, but not be bound by it. And as Drive Time's ad hoc tribute continued, it became clear that even in death, Elizabeth II was still able to sprinkle some of that unifying fairy dust. This was Sinn Féin leader Mary Lou Macdonald's message of sympathy to the Unionist community on the loss of their monarch. Our thoughts are with the the family as as they mourn their beloved mother and and, and grandmother. Um, But of course, it is also the end of an era, without a doubt, and... Um, I think it is fair to say that the the relationship between Ireland and Britain, um, which has been for for too long very troubled, filled with conflict and suffering, was really transformed, uh, particularly by the Good Friday uh, Agreement. And I think the Queen proved herself to be very much a champion and an advocate for peace, for reconciliation and for change. And we've witnessed a changed relationship and a changing relationship between Ireland and Britain. And that is something to be celebrated. So to British people everywhere, but particularly uh, to Irish unionists, um, to uh, those of a British identity who live uh, in Ireland, Irish uh, unionists, we extend uh, a real sense of sympathy because I know these moments must be filled with a mixture of, of pride but also deep sorrow and indeed heartbreak for some of them. You really would have to feel for our nearest neighbours. These have been a tumultuous few years for them. Yes, much of it is of their own making. But listening to Cormac's conversation with the MP Simon Hoare, I got a strong sense of how rudderless many of them must feel right now without the figurehead who has been a constant for their entire lives. I'd suggest that there was a terrible realization that a day that I think any sensible person knew had to come because we are all human and frail um, had dawned and um, uh, I think that that is a you know just something that so many births are just sort of absorbing and um, and sort of thinking about that it has actually occurred and you know my constituencies in the southwest of England I drive past uh, Stonehenge when I go up to Westminster. It's like thinking that sort of Stonehenge is not going to be there the next time I make the journey. Somebody who's always been there has been taken from us. So I, I think there's a, probably just a great sense of being hollowed out this evening. It, it's a very sad and horrible feeling. I think because the Queen has just had such a massive impact, she's been such a stoic, admirable, honest, kind woman. I think it's the last time that we're probably going to see Queen in in our generation as well. Even if you're not an avid royalist, it just feels quite sad. I think it's something that, as a community and as Londoners, it all brings everyone together. You're happy to be here. It's the right place for you to be. It felt weird to go home and not come via here when we knew there would be like so much like community spirit. Why do you think there's been such a strong reaction to her death, all the people here? I think for a lot of us, this is the only monarch we've known in our time. So it's exactly. it's a big thing. And the fact that we now have a king and there's never been a king in our lifetime is just such a changing of the times, yeah. And how do you feel about it? Exactly the same, regardless of how different people may feel. You know, she gave up her life at 25 to serve us. Well, you see the photographs, yes. she was so young. She was so young, and it's just so sad. 
but at the same time she had a very good life. And I saw you laying flowers and I'm just wondering why you wanted to come and do this this evening. Yeah, we're actually students from the United States. We just This is our first week here and we just... Yeah. One of the pair of respects to the Queen. Yeah, and, and we're witnessing history right now, and it's and it's only our what fifth day in Britain. And while everything she did wasn't perfect or amazing for some people, I have this amazing respect for her because she's been this point of steadiness for for so long. And I mean, she's been Queen longer than two of my grandparents have been alive, and she's been this like monarch that like everyone knows about. And coming here and studying here and having this happen in our first week, it's I mean, it's been it's been one of those moments where you realize that this isn't even life. This is history that we're experiencing. Evelyn O'Rourke outside Buckingham Palace on yesterday's Today with Clare Byrne. Autumn is definitely upon us, my friends, so it is time to decide what TV box sets you're going to be choosing for company on what we are promised are going to be long, cold winter nights. Personally, I am sticking with the Tory party, which has been exhausting and enthralling since 2016. And the new season kicked off this week with worrying signs that the scriptwriters are fatigued, refusing to give up on characters who they had buried under the patio last season. Tory alarm at suicidal talk of a Boris Johnson comeback as Prime Minister. This is fascinating. So there's a suggestion that there could be a, a vote of no confidence, people planning on writing to Graham Brady and the 1922 committee before Christmas. And this is aimed at getting Boris Johnson back in the job. Claire Byrne was talking to Kevin Maguire from The Mirror and Jerry Scott from The London Times. Yeah, well, look, credit where credit's due to begin with. The, the plot of the, the 12 letters of the Sunday Mirror story uh, yesterday, but this is the reaction uh, to it by by other Tories who are saying that, you know what, Boris Johnson can't make a comeback. You've got Jake Berry, who is widely tipped to be party chairman under Liz Truss, if she wins, as we expect her to, saying it would be suicidal for the party to try and um, vote, uh, do a new vote of confidence when we've just had eight weeks of navel-gazing. Um, and, and, but then you've got allies of Boris Johnson, Eddie Lister, his former chief of staff, saying, you know, never say never with Boris Johnson and, and don't rule it out. So, you know, this really reflects the, the kind of mood and context in which Boris Johnson is leaving Downing Street. It's not the legacy he would have wanted to be left with. And that's why those close to him are saying, well, don't really make for another shot. Yeah, and there's no doubt, Kevin, that he is lurking there and whether he will go ahead with it or not seems to have designs on an attempt at a comeback at some point, would you agree? Oh, Claire, he, he's going to be a nightmare for whoever wins. It's expected to be Liz Truss because he, he's got a giant ego and he'll want to be the centre of attention, and he'll keep popping up and making speeches. No doubt that will either embarrass or overshadow the next prime minister. I think he's, I think he's finished. I think he'll leave politics at the next election. But he certainly wants the speculation to continue that he might make a comeback, and perhaps in his own mind even thinks it because he never quite knows when he's beaten. He's been written off many times. And uh, and returned, but he will be the ghost at the the feast every day for her. She'll be living <laughs> on tenterhooks, and uh, I believe she's going to appoint somebody from his team into her team to actually manage him, to take his phone calls, to speak to him, make him feel valued, really, to stop him wrecking her premiership. From today with Claire Byrne, and just when you were thinking that this plotting a return plotline had to be more the product of fevered journalists' minds and imaginations than anything based in reality, Boris Johnson came out and more or less said it himself. Like Cincinnatus, I am returning to my plough. And I will be offering this government nothing 
but the most fervent support. One quick Google search later and we all knew that Cincinnatus resigned as dictator and was twice called back from his farm by, hang on, Rome's patrician elite to brutally suppress plebeian revolts? Monday's fanciful speculation had become Tuesday's actual plot twist and now people were talking about how it might happen. So while she would certainly never rule out a Boris Johnson comeback, it's not utterly implausible. It's difficult to see the scenario that could be conjured that would actually allow him uh, to return after he's got on with, with what for him will be the serious business of making lots of money uh, over the next couple of years. Paying no heed to the audience's screams of make it stop, Morning Ireland brought us more of Boris Johnson's farewell. As I leave office, unemployment down to lows not seen since I was about 10 years old and bouncing around on a space hopper, my friends. And on... On the, subject of, on the subject of bouncing around in future careers, let me say that I am now like one of those booster rockets that has fulfilled its function and I will now be gently re-entering the atmosphere and splashing down invisibly in some remote and obscure corner of the Pacific. And before the audience had figured out if 10 wasn't a little bit old for a space hopper, Drive Time brought us Liz Truss's tribute to the man whose duplicity made her Prime Minister. And I also want to thank our outgoing leader, my friend, Boris Johnson. (laughs) Boris, you got Brexit done. You crushed Jeremy Corbyn. You rolled out the vaccine and you stood up to Vladimir Putin. You were admired from Kiev to Carlisle. Somewhat faltering applause there. Were they perhaps unsure that Brexit was done or that Putin had actually been stood up to? Now, I know there is rather a lot on today's programme about women from England called Elizabeth, but look, just lean into it for the moment, please. On Tuesdays, it says in the papers, John S. Doyle was throwing out next season spoilers like cucumber sandwiches at a Chipping Norton garden party. Turn off now if you don't want to know how this ends. The disastrous tenure of Boris Johnson is to be followed by one that threatens to be even worse, says the paper. John Downing in The Independent writes that there is ample precedent for new leaders getting elected on hardline rhetoric and then pragmatically compromising once they get their legs under the table. But, he says, in this case, such an outcome seems depressingly unlikely. Sarah McInerney asked Tory MP and long-time Boris Johnson critic Sir Roger Gale which previous Tory Prime Minister Liz Truss most resembled. That's an interesting question. She has tried to sort of brand herself a bit as Margaret Thatcher Mark II. Um, I'm not sure that a a Margaret Thatcher tribute act is what I would actually want in my prime minister. I I hope that she will be her own person. She is, uh, she's a a born again Brexiteer having Mm. started out as a Remainer. Um, Well, that's all right. I mean, people are allowed to change their minds. Uh, She, probably is to the right of the party. And I hope again that she embraces the One Nation Conservatives within the administration that she's going to form. If she does that, she'll get, I suspect, support across the board. If she doesn't, she may find she has problems herself. While the lead role character may still feel a little bit paper thin, 
there are parts of the script for this season that are getting really dog-eared. The writers just keep on giving the Irish government the same line since season one in 2016. We will work with whoever is elected. It has been widely reported that when the Tory party leadership race began a couple of weeks ago, the Irish government was hoping for anyone but Liz Truss to replace Boris Johnson. Is that right? Asked Sarah McInerney of Minister of State Thomas Byrne. No, I think in fairness now, the government wouldn't take a view on who's going to be elected as Tory Prime Minister. We, we have to just deal with whatever is thrown up uh, by that system in Britain, um, by the members of the Tory party, and deal with them we will. And quite frankly, in the last number of years, those links between Britain and Ireland have been maybe underplayed on the British side. I think we do, definitely do need a reset, but I actually think there is an opportunity for that. Um, and that we can all benefit from it, particularly in Northern Ireland. Mm. Um, and of course, that is the official position. A change of leader presents an opportunity for a fresh start. But this particular leader is the very politician who championed the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, uh, which the Ireland has said is illegal, a mistake, shouldn't be happening. So how can there be cause for optimism? Well, it's certainly illegal and I think a mistake as well. Look, I think there's no doubt that Boris Johnson was driving that particular piece of legislation forward. There were definitely mixed views of the Cabinet. It hasn't passed yet. It went through the House of Commons fairly easily because I think none of them wanted to lose uh, the whip during a leadership election. Um, so let's see what happens in the House of Lords and then when it comes back to the Commons again. But you know, even in the space of time that has, ha- has gone on now with the Tory leadership election, Liz Truss has so many more problems uh, on her and her government's plate. The energy crisis foremost among them. And they must know as well as we do that we we can't solve these problems on our own. We we have to work together, us through the European Union, but Britain will have to work together uh, with a range of uh, international organisations and states to get through this energy crisis, to get through this Ukraine Mm. uh, crisis as well. And I would hope, I can't say that I expect it, but I certainly hope um, that the British government will take that particular view as well. More in hope than expectation, Thomas Byrne. The measure of what kind of government this was going to be, the critics agreed, would be found in who Liz Truss cast in the supporting roles. But Jacob Rees-Mogg is energy minister? Now he's, he's certainly from the old Etonian cloth, that's for sure. I mean, he's a very interesting point because as energy minister, he's someone who in the past has expressed a lot of scepticism about climate change. He wants to extract every last drop of oil from the North Sea. So whether he matches the sort of the... the the rhetoric that curdles the blood of environmentalists and whether he puts that into policy is a different question, I think. But certainly it will help to appease the sort of Tory rights who think that the net zero agenda is, uh, is self, self-damaged, basically. George Parker on Morning Ireland. George also told us that the producers had a really tough time casting the role of Northern Ireland's secretary. Twice it was turned down. Did nobody else want the job? Listen, being Northern Ireland Secretary is not, not the most popular job in the British government. It involves a lot of time spent on planes to Belfast, dealing with implacable unionist politicians. And it sounds like a number of people turned down that job, including Sajid Javid, uh, including Penny Warden, one of the leadership contenders as well. In fact, both of them were leadership contenders. Um, so, yes, it's not a popular job. And it's obviously dealing with what seems to be an intractable situation in, at Stormont as well. So, in the end, the job went to Chris Eaton-Harris, who's... Uh, a former chairman of the virulently anti-Brussels faction within the Tory party, the ERG. He is also, academic Deirdre Heenan told Claire Byrne, the man who wrote to universities looking for lists of academics teaching about Brexit. That is what he is known for in academic circles and he has been described as a a pound shot McCarthy 
And it is worrying that someone would write two vice-chancellors across the UK demanding to know who was lecturing on Brexit and could he have sight of their lecturing materials. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary, really. He then claimed it was for a book that never materialised. But I think... Uh, the best thing we can say is that we are living in interesting times. This is the third Secretary of State in three months, which is extraordinary. And his appointment will be welcomed by anti-protocol unionists. He is, as you have said, a hardline Brexiteer, a former chair of the ERG. He won't be viewed as a neutral or impartial by those who support the protocol. Claire got another more benign opinion on Chris Heaton-Harris from a former political opponent, John Cushnahan, at various stages of his career, either Alliance Party or Fine Gael MEP. He became friends with the new Northern Secretary when in the European Parliament. Well, he's a very affable individual, and I think uh, when I read the newspapers this morning, it's a big mistake to underestimate his ability. Although I would have been fundamentally in conflict with him over his attitude to Europe, uh, he and I were good friends, and he was also very supportive of the work I did in the European Parliament. This this person is very, very competent. I think that his appointment is not simply because other people turned down the job. I think it's more to do with the precarious position of Liz Truss. She did not have a very successful election as leader. She had minority support and trailed badly in the parliamentary party, and she narrowly won it in the party membership. And I think that she wants a trusted lieutenant in place Mm -hmm. uh, to deal with the protocol issue and indeed the the, the problem of Northern Ireland so that she can concentrate and try and restore some sort of relationship with the EU and with the Irish government. I suppose, John, the facts are that we do know that people did turn this down before he was appointed and we also know that he is a hard Brexiteer. So what does that tell us? I mean, will it mean more of the same regarding the position on the Northern Ireland Protocol? Is she saying to him, I trust you while I'm distracted with the cost of living and energy crisis to follow my line here? Oh, I think that that, that is absolutely the reason she's put, she's put someone in that post whom she can absolutely rely on. Uh, remember, he has served uh, as Minister for Brexit. Uh, he served as Minister of State under her. Uh, and don't forget, as Chief Whip, he piloted her bill through the Westminster Parliament. So it means that the matter is now in good hands. And also, furthermore, about the internal politics of the Tory party. He was chairman of the European Research Group. So if there's any problems within that, he's okay. very, very experienced and probably from her point of, point of view, maybe not Northern Ireland's point of view, but from her point of view, she has put the, the, the best person in the job. And so the stage was set on the news at one for the introduction of the new Northern Secretary. What could possibly go wrong here, I ask you? I'm looking forward to meeting all the political parties here in Northern Ireland over the next couple of days, uh, starting here today. Um, also looking forward not to being stung by any wasps, and, uh, but actually looking forward to being Secretary of State for Northern Ireland and trying to deliver a, uh, enough pressure so we can get an executive up and running, solve the problems of the protocol, uh, and indeed some of the more useful domestic things that I can do to help people here in their everyday lives. Now, Brad, just explain that reference to, to the wasp. Unfortunately for the new Northern Secretary, just as he began to speak, a large wasp started to, to swarm around his face and became a little bit concerned. But no doubt there were some stinging words inside the meeting. Uh, with... I hope you people have realised by now that this stuff no longer requires any actual journalism. It just writes itself. Our Northern editor, Vincent Carney, on the news at 1 on Thursday. 
Welcome back. Well, soft-hearted type that I am, I haven't eaten any pulpo since watching My Octopus Teacher. But now it seems that eating the common octopus that has been pushed north by climate change is nothing short of our patriotic duty. Well, either we eat them or we help Kevin Flannery from Ocean World Aquarium find homes for them because this invasive species is wreaking havoc with our native lobster population. We got four down off of between Skull, Baltimore. I've got them up as far as the Blaskets. We've got them in Kinmere. And in the last week, I picked up two, one from Union Hall and one from Skull again. And they are inside. How the fishermen get them is that their lobsters are dead inside the, in the pot that they're fishing. These guys are stay in there and right. now they all, they can't escape out because they'll go out through the pot very easily but when the fisherman hauled up his pot he had one of these big guys in it and it was the same in Union Hall as in Skull so they have moved in here Ray, because they're not a migratory species as such they don't come we get a lot of different migratory species like we had flying fish we get triggered yeah and we've had you on over the years where there'd be the odd sighting yeah. of something and it'd make the papers and we'd have you on we'd yeah. have a chat about it and, and that, that happens but, but, but this is th- th- this is different this is different because I think they're, because they're very slow moving, they have moved up slowly up the Bay of Biscay, up the west coast of France in the channel and moved in here and they're possibly breeding here. And if they're breeding here, then the lobster stock and the crayfish and the crab yeah. will, ha- it will have consequences for the fishermen. They can't believe their luck. It's like a restaurant for them. They rock up to a, a lobster pot and they're all there caught for them. They don't have to do any the hard work. Feast, the yeah, feast themselves and move on to the next one. Just as a bit of a tangent, is this because of global warming? Is this because the seas around Ireland I are getting warmer? So. Yeah, without a doubt, I yeah. think so. Yeah, there is no. Uh, okay, absolutely. So. I mean, we had water temperatures last week off the coast of England up to nineteen degrees, right. which is absolutely crazy. Nineteen degrees. You have to see where I'm going with this, don't you? Nineteen degrees. The waters off Kerry are as warm right now as all government departments are going to be this winter. This is focused on the public service and how the public service can act as a leader as we come into the winter by taking action to reduce energy needs. And it seems that there's three parts to it. One is setting a maximum temperature in public buildings of 19 degrees Celsius. Paul Cunningham on Morning Ireland. And while top tips on energy saving were to be heard everywhere this week, fill the empty spaces in your freezer with newspaper apparently, folks, there are some who are determined not to make any concessions to our new frugality. Going in the opposite direction is Tony Noonan from County Limerick, whose bungalow in Temple Eglantine has three times been judged the best private dwelling in the country for its Christmas light display. He told Jimmy Wolfe of The Independent that he's not put off by the expected hike in electricity. He has already started to unspool 1,500 metres of cable and has 5,000 bulbs in storage. And then there are people like Lorraine Cooney, who explained to Joe Duffy how her son's dialysis unit has to be run from 2 in the afternoon until 7 the following morning, six days a week. I'm just dreading the winter months because the gas bill is going to be absolutely enormous now come the winter months. I mean, it already is high and I'm just dreading what will happen. I mean, we put some home improvements into our house um, in order to try and offset some of the costs, put in some solar panels. So obviously, summer months, can't really see the huge difference yet, but Mm -hmm. I know I'm I'm dreading what's coming, if you get me. If, God forbid, Callum had to be in hospital for his dialysis, you don't get an electricity bill, sure you don't. You know what I mean? That is, the state yeah. pay for that, rightly so. Yes, 
that's right. Yeah, if he was in hospital. Because it is, the reason he needs the extra electricity is because of his medical condition. That's it. In order for us to keep him at home, he's on um, a type of dialysis that we can do from home called peritoneal. Yeah, okay. So it's not like the one they do in the hospital. Brilliant. But when he Brilliant. is admitted, yeah. um, they will set up the, the peritoneal dialysis machine for myself or my husband to use with Callum. And like that, yeah, we're, we're, we don't get the bill from the hospital for it. But, you know, we're keeping him out of hospital and... Yeah. You which know, is which is what so every family which which every which every family wants to do. Yeah, but, absolutely. The news from Rossfield and Tala and Glen Bay Racecourse in Kerry last weekend gave us all more than a moment's pause. The murders of Chelsea, Christie, and Lisa, as well as the untimely accidental death of Jack, were devastating. And as Ryan Tuberty found out, that is what people wanted to talk about on Monday, and his planned program ended up falling by the wayside. Okay, um, you know, we were going a certain direction with the programme this morning and um, that's changed and changing all the time. And I can see it from the text this morning that you, it's like you want to grieve and, and you want to make your, your thoughts known, which is fair enough. Um, that's, that's right too. So, okay, I'm going to have to hit a song, I'm afraid. I've been awake for so long now Just can't get to sleep Now this is not about Ryan or what he felt on Monday because what he was feeling was what anyone who tried to contemplate these events found themselves feeling, overwhelmed. And for a while on Monday morning, sharing those feelings by text message to a radio programme became a communal form of therapy. Heartbreaking and soul-destroying devastation, says the text. I feel numb and I don't know the family involved. It's unimaginable. Now, that's a very good point. We don't, I don't know the families involved. You don't know the families involved. But I think we all feel, what if they're there for the grace of God, go any of us? I think that seems to be the case. It's just so random and horrible. Shouldn't forget the brave brother that climbed out the window to get help, that's for sure. And a lot of people around all of this who are going to suffer, whether it's the guards who arrived on the scene, whether it's the parents, uh, the siblings, aunties, uncles, enormous amount of colleagues, friends, school children. At the, as somebody says there, um, you know, three, three empty desks um, for different reasons. A temporary grandmother says who's, who has seen too much grief already. Thank you for summing up the thoughts of the nation, says a uh, text from Anna, Anna, from Adam Cara, our friends in Adam Cara. Well, they do such good work, um, such good work for people in this, uh, in families in this situation. A uh, beautiful tribute to those young souls that have gone too soon. I want to reverse my car back around to my children's school, give them another big hug and a kiss. These precious moments we take for granted. And may they all rest in peace. Okay. The volume of texts, the level of unprocessed grief, suggested to Ryan's producers that a call to clinical psychologist Dr. Keith Gaynor might be useful. Mm. It's a strange thing. It's, it just seems to have, have, have got under everyone's skin. Well, I think it's something that everyone recognises. Everyone has kids those at that age, or if they're not themselves, somewhere in their own community. And to have something so out of the blue and so out of their control, I think is very frightening for people. 
I mean, I feel it myself. I'm sure you feel it too. And I'm sure the callers feel it. And so there's a lot we can do to reassure children. There's a lot we can do to help. But I think the first step is then allowing ourselves to grieve and allowing to, you know, our, to help ourselves rather than saying we're fine. This is normal. Nothing to see here. And to do that, it, it's it's to talk. I think that, you know, historically in Ireland, we, we haven't been wonderful at uh, speaking openly and grieving openly and confronting awfulness yeah. in a meaningful and if way. And if you think maybe, you know, um, you know that the, the, when Princess Diana died, you saw an outpouring of grief because that's what that nation needed at that time. Mm. And it might have seemed strange to go and give flowers to somebody that you didn't know at all. But actually, it allowed that nation to grieve. And that may or may not be something that people feel comfortable with in their own situations here, but it might be something that they want. It might be something that they need. And that actually, we can allow that. That society doesn't have to put a lid on that. Um, and that we can say, okay, if I need to talk about this with my husband, with my partner, with my neighbour, actually, I'm allowed to do that. And um, even though I might know this family and their grief isn't directly my grief, it does affect me. I am affected by it. Mm. And just allow that. I'm affected by this today. Chelsea, Christy, Lisa and Jack were buried. The world moves on relentlessly. But for one moment, we all stopped and we admitted that we were feeling the same terrible things. We talked about it on radio. For some, it helped. And if you heard it, it was special. Take care of yourselves. Have a good weekend. Playback on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by Panadol. Panadol made in Ireland. Contains paracetamol. Always read the label.